Hello and welcome to the Chronic Living Podcast, your need-to-know source for living with a chronic illness or disability. I'm your host, Alex Pappas, and I'll be sharing my experiences living with a chronic illness, as well as inviting others on to share their stories. So join me in shining a light on the world that is chronic living. All right, guys, thank you for joining me for another episode of Chronic Living. Today, I am joined by Amy, and she's going to share some of her experiences being part of the chronic community. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Amy, and um, I'm 48. Uh, my health was pretty good up until uh, probably my, well, I say pretty good um, comparatively to now, but compared to um, somebody that doesn't have health issues, I guess it probably wasn't great. Um, I had uh, migraines starting in um, high school, uh, but um, didn't know I was really sick per se until I was probably my late 20s. Okay. Um, that's when uh, I started uh, just noticing that I never felt uh, refreshed when I woke up and um, uh, struggled with some, well, I, I was undiagnosed with ADHD um, and didn't get a diagnosis for that 38. So that I'm sure played um, into um, just kind of depression and anxiety kind of stuff, mostly depression, I would say. Um, seasonal, I guess, is worse for me. I live in Washington state. So when it's um, November to February, it's a little bit worse, but um, this time of year is pretty great. Yeah, um, it's like raining and crappy out. I can see it uh, snowing, I guess, up there. Yeah, yeah. And, and I didn't know it then, but I can feel in my body physically when the barometer changes. So when it gets cold out, it, it's um, pretty painful for me. Um, so I... Um, my husband and I married, I was about 24. Um, and we tried for a few years to have kids and we were not able to, um, unexplained infertility. Um, come to find out later, my parents had also, um, had some infertility issues. Um, and not sure what that was related to, but several of the things that I've been diagnosed with since can cause infertility. So I'm guessing that that may have been what was uh, behind that. Okay. Um, so probably about 28, um, I, I'm on the phone, babe. <laughs> That's one of my kiddos. We adopted four kids. Um, and we have one teenager still at home and he's got, he's on the autism spectrum. Um, so he was just looking for me. Um, Are you good? So probably about 28, I started really seeking um, an answer for why I wasn't feeling good. Um, and of course, uh, nobody could really tell me anything. All my blood tests come back negative and um, my, they just weren't real. Like even with my infertility, my doctors 
at that time said, well, when you really are serious and want to have a kid come back and see me or, you know, just, I wasn't really taken very serious because I think I was relatively young and looked healthy because I didn't have any um, visible signs and it wasn't an easy find. Mm-hmm. Um, so I believe I was in my early thirties when I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure that that's, um, a, a correct diagnosis. That was just the beginning. Um, I've since accumulated a bunch of diagnoses. Um, and I, I really think that the, um, fibromyalgia was, was actually, um, I'm being tested now for, um, uh, hypermobility Ehlers-Danlos, which would um, explain a lot of the stuff that I had growing up. Um, but um, not gonna lie, for whatever reason, I keep getting a lot of people with the same, yeah, like stuff. I've had a couple people with dysautonomia. I've had a couple people with Ehlers-Danlos. Quite yeah. a few people with fibromyalgia. Yeah, well, I think that fibromyalgia is kind of like, I hate to say it, because it is a real thing, and I might have it, but I feel like it's a garbage, a garbage can diagnosis that when doctors can't figure out what it is, or they're just tired of looking, that that's what they attribute it to. Um, But I don't feel that, I feel that there's a lot of maybe misdiagnosis of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Eilers-Danlos originally i mean the there's like 13 different subtypes so it's really complicated but the hypermobility is not genetic i believe i'm still learning about this but um they they used to say like one in five thousand people had it but now they're saying that maybe one in every 500 have it mm-hmm. that it's actually way than no you still there like um digestive issues so you can have um ibs and all of the irritable bowel stuff um dysautonomia um migraines there's like five different things and my memory is really bad so i can't remember right now but i can send you a link later of um it's a complex neurology place in um in Arizona that I found that has some really educational videos on it. But um, so anyway, uh, I was diagnosed with that. Well then, so I'm working through that. I um, was a stay-at-home mom for a while because of my adopted kids. Um, um, We adopted uh, a sibling group of three and my son out of that group was um, special needs so I had to stay home and I think a lot of um, stress really adds to a lot of the um, health issues that we are seeing now whether it's through mm-hmm. um, parenting issues or um, dealing with the school districts or just um, trying to keep up with uh, four kids when you're 
not feeling good, you know, like I think a lot of stress is so paramount to where we're at as a society anyway. Um, yeah, and that's, <laughs> I mean, that's a big part of why we talk about like mental health on the podcast a lot because Crohn's and colitis, I mean, I have colitis, anything digestive is incredibly reactive to stress. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those people that have Crohn's and colitis, and there are some other things that are triggered a lot by stress it can cause flare-ups can cause you know your um, diagnosis to kind of act up more which is why Absolutely. we generally talk about you know finding those things for mental health and just being able to kind of chill and relax and well get in your own yeah. zone every once in a while <laughs> ideally yeah <laughs> my husband actually just went through a procedure because they think that he has ulcerative colitis so um, colonoscopy yeah and endoscopy and oh yep uh, yeah so fun yeah poor guy but you know so he's kind of in the same boat he's he was military he was deployed um and then the same kind of stress at home that I'm dealing with you know so we both now have autoimmune issues which is strange but so um, anyway, my, my diagnoses are, um, rheumatoid arthritis, um, in January of last year, I was diagnosed with double seronegative myasthenia gravis, which is, um, considered extremely rare, I guess one in, I mean, I guess only like 20,000 people in the U S are double seronegative, but that's another one that I think is not diagnosed as much as people have it because doctors quit looking for it. You're so you know? rare, yeah. Yeah. Um, I also have um, um, cervical dystonia, which causes a head tremor. So um, I'm sure you can hear it in my voice, but it looks like I, it almost looks like I have Parkinson's, but, um, it's this dystonia, it's a movement disorder. Um, and then, um, endometriosis, um, my back is just, which I'm sure a lot of this is from the Ehlers-Danlos. Like, I think that instead of having 50 diagnoses, I have maybe three or four, but the other ones are like, like the dysautonomia, that's probably part of the Ehlers-Danlos. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, it's not they kind really of go, to, go together, yeah, mimic each like other. A, well, it's a it's a comorbidity, so like they oftentimes go together, and mm. um, I don't know. It just makes more sense that I would just have, you know, I don't know, like like what are the chances of me having two rare illnesses? Like, well, three, if you count Ehlers-Danlos, like cervical dystonia and myasthenia gravis are both rare. So what would be the chances of me having those two plus Ehlers-Danlos? But here we are. We, we were talking about, a couple of people were talking about that and said it a couple of times. It'd be curious mm -hmm. to see... We put everything in that we had, like, you know, being left-handed, 
hair color, eye yeah. color, height, and everything, and all the diseases we have, like how rare it is. Actually, it's funny that you say that because um, I was actually, be, I was working full time until last fall when I had um, a medical crisis. I ha- had a, a myasthenic crisis, which is, um, it's like rest, your, you can't really breathe, your respiratory you can go into respiratory failure and um, it can be lethal, but not much anymore now that they know more about it. But, um, you know, we're, we were talking about October during the pandemic and um, I was pretty close to getting put on a ventilator at that point, And that was really frightening, but they were able to treat me with um, IVIG, which they use for a lot of um, autoimmune, I believe, or rheumatological stuff. Um, but, uh, after I had the crisis, um, I was wrongfully terminated from my job while I was actually out on sick leave. And it's been a really tough year. This just, um, not only just coming back from um like I lost a big part of myself when that happened because um that's when I developed the cervical dystonia so I didn't have a head tremor before that and um my uh it I just had a brain MRI in March and they found uh, new lesions and so they had tested me for MS, which they're saying I don't have, but I'm not really sure what causes brain lesions, <laughs> you know, and yeah. cognitive oh. migraines, and they're saying, no, we think it's migraines, but every, um, everywhere I've researched um, is saying that those type of lesions don't cause cognitive issues. So anyway, I lost How much my sleep career. do you get out of curiosity? Um, not a ton. Um, that, that's one thing that can play into, um, you know, like brain fog and, and it can also like amplify issues that you have with memory. So your body needs generally eight hours of sleep a night. The first four hours your body uses to repair your body physically. So if you like cut yourself, you have bruises, you're working out, you know, your body rebuilds muscles, that kind of thing's done in the first four hours. The following four hours is for cognitive performance. So it helps with your uh, memory retention, how quickly you can kind kind of react and respond to things when it comes to, you know, mental solutions and kind of just thinking in general. Yeah. Um, and I say that because I average like five hours of sleep a night during the week normally. And yeah. closer I get in the afternoon, that brain fog starts hitting me. Now that, if you're already having things like medications that cause brain fog or a condition that causes brain fog, that lack of sleep can add on to it and make it worse. Yeah. Well, I've been, I've had a, since high school, I've had insomnia pretty terribly. Yeah. Um, but now that I'm not working, I usually, uh, I just sleep until either my dog 
wakes me up or I get up on my own, but it's usually between nine and 1030. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, depending on how sleep deprived I am, I might go to sleep at 1030 at night, but I, but a lot of times it's more like three or four, you know, like I'm in bed. I I'm waiting to go to sleep. I've taken my medication that makes you tired. I've taken my melatonin. (laughs) So, but I know that if I get up, um, it gets my blood rushing and then I, you know, cause they, they used to say, don't, well, they might still say it, but don't stay in your room if you, um, are, not sleeping because then your brain associates not sleeping with your bed but um i used to do that and then i would be up in around the house you know trying to do something boring reading a book or um something that would like not be super interesting that my brain would want to keep doing but i just found that by the time I got sleepy, then I got up and I had to, you know, let the dogs out the last time and all that kind of stuff. Then I get in bed and I'm all wide awake again. So, uh, I don't know. There's no easy answer for that, but you're right. Yeah. I, I think that when our brain, when we sleep, our brain is like defragging. <laughs> like, I think that that's kind of where we get some weird dreams sometimes as all these um, different inputs that are coming in and our brain is trying to sort it out and put it back in order. And if we don't get enough, we don't, yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's just stacks on top of everything you're already doing. Yeah. Well, and I, before I was working though, when I was going to school, uh, well, I was working as a, a drug and alcohol counselor so it's interesting that you say it's that people were talking about addiction and recovery because man I sure see it and I I really um, have observed a lot of that and chronic illness and all that stuff in the community for so long um, and actually one of my thesis papers was um, when I first started in the field I worked at a youth detox and there was only 10 beds and um, I would say a majority of the time I would have at least three or four kids in there that were left-handed and I'm like there's got to be a correlation because in the normal community you see it one in 10 people so if I'm seeing it and then I would notice as I went through my career after that that a lot of times when when I would do groups that I would have several people that were left-handed but I did a thesis paper on it and about is there um, you know correlation between left-handedness and addiction Um, and it also um, then in my research I found well so I did a, a big survey um, in my school and I did one on Facebook. So it wasn't like a major scientific study, but um, my, my survey showed about every two and a half to 10 was left-handed if they had addiction. And it, it was kind of 
it just kind of rang true to what I was seeing in the community. Well, also in looking that stuff up, I also found that that can um, relate to autism and it can also relate to um, ADHD. Um, a lot of women that are actually right-handed might be, um, or left-handed might be ambidextrous and it would still count. I don't know, it's kind of confusing, but it does seem like it, it does somehow play a part. Um, but from what I could tell, it, it had to do with um, exposure to certain hormones in the womb. <laughs> and so I'm wondering like, you know, maybe when they started, I don't know, doing uh, DDT or who knows, I don't know, I'm just reaching, but you know, like when it was a big environmental s switch, was it affecting pregnant ladies? And now a lot of the children that were born during that time now are acquiring autoimmune issues. I don't know, you know, kind of a crazy thing, but. Yeah, yeah. And I think, honestly, things are becoming more and more common nowadays, too. Yeah. Which is definitely playing a part. And it's like, why are things becoming more common than they used to be? Well, and I'm sure that people, doctors and that are more um, aware of those types of things, too. So, you know, like, like I, the first person that was diagnosed with myasthenia gravis was like in the 1700s and I'm thinking how did they even you know like my experience with doctors <laughs> like this is a known thing and they still missed it all the time so I'm thinking they really must have had somebody that was really looking and wanted to know things you know I don't know I know that my experience with um doctors hasn't been great I've I've had um, a lot of doctors tell me that it was all in my head in various different ways and when I finally was diagnosed I just wanted to like go back to them and say you are really doing such a disservice to people um like medical gaslighting you know like making us doubt our own sanity and uh, I know some people talk about um, having like a form of PTSD don't want to go into doctors and um, I don't know that I'm that at that place but I just wish that doctors they're not set up to, to work with chronic illness. They, no, they are, it's more like you're in my office. What do I need to do to um, make you feel better? What can I prescribe you? <laughs> yeah. And that's a lot of the long-term um, opioid, all of that stuff. I've, Yeah. Oh, probably 60, 70% of my clients that were opioid dependent started with valid prescriptions, you know, mm -hmm. 
they just didn't know um, how to deal with the pain and the doctors weren't giving them anything other than renewals, you know? And so here we are, it's sad, but um, yeah, I don't know what I was going to say, sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. No, it, it, it is, and we've talked about that um, a couple of the episodes, you know, having issues getting diagnosed with chronic illnesses, or even had some people that have suggested certain illnesses that they had, and the doctors ignored them, and then years later, finally get diagnosed by somebody else that's more, you know, capable. So, well, yeah, I was actually the one that pushed for my myasthenia gravis. My, my primary doctor had mentioned it years ago she said but she's a um a physician assistant so she didn't she was under somebody else in the clinic you know what I mean so she couldn't necessarily be like oh here's a referral for this specialist in this one and um but she said you know I think you might have myasthenia gravis and I kind of let it go because I thought she was talking about uh graves disease because mm -hmm. I'd never heard of it, you know, and, and so I, but then I heard her say it again, probably a couple of years later, and I'm like, okay, maybe I need to look into this. And so that's when I really kind of started pushing for specific tests. And um, that's really how I was like, I went to, I even went to the Mayo Clinic, and they, <laughs> They found that I had um, some issues at a neurological level, probably something to do with my nerves, but they said that it was, um, they weren't going to count it because I was taking Zyrtec or something like that. And I don't know, my, my, neuro, my neurologist now just kind of shakes his head and says, I don't know what they were talking about, but um, you know, like I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars that I really didn't have to spend on medical stuff, um, mm -hmm. on being tested and how many hours of work have I lost? And now I'm, now I'm disabled. I can't even, you know, hold a job because of neurological issues and, and physical too. Um, and, you know, if somebody had just listened and, and really looked 20 years ago, I might be a healthy person that could live a healthy life, you know, it's, it, it's hard to not be angry about it, but I, it doesn't do any good to be angry about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it can only do can only do so much, unfortunately. No, yeah. and it, it is frustrating when, especially if you're talking about things or if you had to have the same diagnosis forever and, you know, like five, 10 years into it, you're just getting information that you should have been told day one or that you've asked one doctor about and, oh, no, that's not related. And then another one's like, yeah, that's 100% related. Yeah. Just, just that kind of stuff. And yeah, and the cost behind it, like yeah, medical debt is a pain. <laughs> Yeah, I've only ever been to collection for medical debt. Yep. Yep. It's like, you know, I mean, I don't even have consumer debt really. Um, 
but even if I wanted to, I couldn't because I'm always paying for, you know, insurance, but yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I have like 15 grand worth of medical debt I'm paying off and yeah, probably paid like 40 in the past five or six years. And it's like, that's a, that's a new vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> like fully paid off. Well, every, I mean, when I was working, I had double insurance because I had mine from my work. And then my husband's company, it's really affordable for he and I to be on it together. Mm-hmm. And with all my medical issues, it just makes sense. And so, but even with double insurance, I would hit my deductible for both insurances before April. Yeah. Like we're talking MRIs and CT scans and all. Oh yeah. You, you get know? your out of pocket early. Yeah. It's, Which, it's, I mean, it's not a bad thing because then anything else you need for the year is covered, but it still means you have to pay yeah. your out-of-pocket costs, which yeah, but it generally just goes a lot. to speak about how much, how many procedures and stuff, you know, that we're talking. It's a lot. And um, yeah, shoot. It's like your whole life becomes about your medical condition and you know, um, I don't know, but I know it, it, it's really hard to talk about other things with people because, um, you don't have a life outside of, you know, you can't escape your medical issues. They're with you 24 seven. And, you know, like, it's not like a hobby that you can like talk about for a while and then talk about other parts of your life. It's like, it's all encompassing. And so it feels like you talk about it a lot. And I think people get tired of hearing it because they yeah. don't really know how they to don't understand. You. Well, yeah. yeah. And they don't fully understand the con like the whole concept behind it. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't know it like, I, I, with myasthenia gravis, it, because it's one that not a people, not a lot of people have heard about, um, I don't mind, you know, if anybody ever like has wanted to ask me questions in my life, like, Hey, what is this? How does this affect you? Or that kind of stuff. And even if they're like, Hey, I, I heard about this really weird tea from China that might help you. Like I'm open to any of those things because to me it it makes me feel like they're thinking of me and they wish that they could help me in some way and they're even if they're grasping at straws they're like hey I really um I acknowledge your suffering and I want to help you and even though this might be wacko I'm going to suggest this you know what I mean I know a lot of people get really um, offended or just get tired of hearing it, but I try to look at it in the way of they're, they're thinking about me. Like I do that. I'm a fixer. You know, if Mm -hmm. I heard about something that I could possibly use to help somebody, I'm going to bring it up and, you know, I don't know. I don't know, but it just like there are some people that you know you want to talk about and they just don't they want to talk about you know anything but that and you're like but I don't know anything but that yeah yeah no I can understand that because it 
I mean, it changes everything that you deal with on a regular basis. <laughs> like everything. Yeah. yeah. Like, so. yeah, my entire life is like, and I've always been the one that, you know, I push through, push through, push through, because that's just what you do, right? <laughs> like, when I was, you know, had my kids and I was still already starting to feel sick and I was working full time and went to school full time and like had special needs kids. And, but it was almost like I had to prove to myself that I could do all these super hard things to prove that I was normal or I don't know exactly. I don't know if that's a thing that people struggle with. Um, but like, maybe it was a way of saying, being justified at being tired and I don't know. But I know now though, that by pushing and using so much stress consistently that um, I, I don't have that choice anymore. You know, like I, now I struggle with, um, like I've really been disabled and I'm just now getting to the point where like they, they gave me a power chair because occasionally um, MG causes um, extreme fatigue and muscle weakness. So if I, and I have RA. And so if I am having a flare, there's, even if I had a wheelchair, I couldn't push myself because I wouldn't be strong enough to do that. Um, but when I had my crisis, I could only walk about 65 feet and I had a, a walker and I have dysautonomia as well. So like, you know, your heart is pounding and your blood pressure shoots up or down and, mm -hmm. um, migraines and, um, so, um, I don't remember where I was going with that, but it I mean, just, it's, a, it's a lot to deal with all around. So I understand that, but I've been trying, I think now though, my brain is, I've been running on so little cylinders when I was working that it's almost like, well, if I can load the dishwasher, that means that I must be able to go back to work, <laughs> you know, because I couldn't even load the dishwasher before because I would drag myself home from work and, and crash on the couch. And if I didn't, if my husband didn't cook or get me food, I wouldn't have eaten because I was so tired. So yeah. I'm so used to not having anything in my tank so that you know, if I have an energy burst for five minutes, I, my brain is like, oh, we must be better. You know, it's, it's a, I kind of attribute it a lot to like Lucy and the football is my chronic illness and I'm Charlie Brown mm -hmm. and it keeps convincing me that I'm better and that, you know, like, oh, I actually had a clear brain day today so that means I'm better you know and then I wake up the next day and I can't make sentences happen you know and so 
and then I wind up flat on my back and I'm surprised every single time. <laughs> like, I don't, it's, it's such a hard thing to wrap your head around. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot and a lot of stuff that we have to deal with and kind of adapt to and day to day life changes a lot because of it. Yeah. I think it, I think that I try to stay hopeful, you know, like, cause if I lose all hope, then that isn't a good way to live. But if you're hopeful, then when you come crashing down, it hurts every time, even a little bit more than it did the last time, you know, it's, uh, it's a hard, um, um, it's hard to figure out a balance between living, uh, expecting to get better or just accepting where you're at, you know? Well, I think it's, you know, one of those important things that I talk about from time to time is setting goals that make sense for you based on what you're doing. Yeah. You know, I try to, yeah, I try to do that, like make bite-sized goals. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of like coping skills that I've taught over the years with people in recovery, because it doesn't matter if it's recovery from addiction or if it's recovery with physical illness, like there's recovery and mental illness, like there's um, things that are similar in all of those and you know like don't don't future trip and don't um you know be kind to yourself know that you're in you're repairing you know like I know a lot of that stuff but when it comes to applying it to me I forget sometimes you know and then it takes somebody else to say it and I have to think oh that's right you know I I should instead of being upset that I can't load the dishwasher today, maybe I can, you know, wash silverware for a minute and put it in there. And that's still something more than I did yesterday, you know? Well, that's the thing, you know, it's it's hard to remember to use those sometimes. but, yeah, it's it's setting those, you know, setting the proper goals. Yeah. Um, um, what are, so you have um, colitis? Yep, yep. So I have ulcerative colitis. I've had it for what, like 10 years now? So I got almost 17. Um, wow. For the most part, I'm in remission. So that's kind awesome. of where I'm at that page of like, okay, let's educate other people and help other people that are dealing with stuff. Exactly. Because at the end of the day, I think, you know, regardless of what we're diagnosed with, we all deal with 70 to 80% of the same stuff. It's yeah. how our life changes, social life, work life, relationships, yeah. you know, energy to do things, having to prioritize mental health differently, dealing with doctors, medications. Yeah. And then that, you know, 20 to 30% of it is our diagnosis. Like, you know, colitis yeah. for me, it's 
what can I eat? What medications yeah. am I specifically on? Um, you know, what kind of preventative treatments there are and things that you have to keep, you know, up on on a more regular basis, yearly colonoscopies, higher risk for colon cancer. Yeah. That's specifically colitis and Crohn's and then all the other stuff I think we all deal with. And yeah. I was having that conversation with a lady last night who was dealing with uh, addiction and she had been sober for a really long time and she helps other people kind of recover and a lot of things line up even with something like addiction yeah because you still got to prioritize your mental health you know exactly you still got to get to that point where you have to you know kind of understand and accept what you're dealing with and yes as much as it's not fun except the changes that you have to deal with in, in your new normal, essentially the new person right. you become. Right. And you always have to work a program. So whether it's like, I mean, we want to go back to what's familiar and comfortable, but that doesn't work anymore because whatever it is, addiction or our bodies or our minds, like we don't, that's not healthy for us. So like when yep. in your case, you know, you can't, eat your comfort food or whatever it is oh, i mean that's putting it simply massive but... list of food i can't eat anymore yeah. oh. i don't drink i don't eat a bunch of stuff anything spicy don't eat anymore, yeah. like super spicy which I'm, I'm part cajun so that cuts out a oh. lot of the cajun food oh. um but yeah no, and it's a lot to kind of deal with especially for people that are older like i talk about it from time yeah. to time getting it when i'm 17 you know you have no life when you're a 17 year old, you're not in a career, you don't have a family, you don't have like a marriage, getting things later on, I think is, is harder for some people. And I see it a lot in the groups, because it's like you have a career, you have a family, and then everything changes, and, and who you yeah. are changes. So, but it's also, I mean, I can see that point. But also, as somebody that's older, I can say that I was healthy enough that I was able to have those things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So one, and I think it is, it's very individually based. Like, I think that's definitely my yeah. opinion. Um, yeah. And I also have severe colitis. I don't fall on the mild side. So mm. when it was acting up and it was getting really bad, it got really bad. Um, and I kind of need those regular, I get regular infusions, um, some people it doesn't affect as much if they are on the mild side and they can kind of live yeah fairly normal right. with some either basic medication or sometimes some people can get away with no medication and just changing their diets yeah I think my husband's more on the mild side thankfully but that I'm sure could change um yeah but yeah. but man yeah, if you don't take I care don't... of it it can get it can get a lot worse so if you're in a yeah. flare-up the flare can cause it to go from like mild to moderate and if you get it if it gets bad enough, it can even go to severe and that can be your new normal. So, yeah. So it's something you have to be really careful with. I think that's the thing that's scary. Maybe, maybe is just the unknown because, you know, we've, all of us have lost so much of ourselves that we don't know how much more we can lose, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and you still hold on to some bad habits that you would normally be able to break easier but it's like like for example I'm horrible when it comes to candy and sugar <laughs> and I know I know it's horrible for me but it's one of those things where if I don't if I'm not too bad with it it doesn't bother me but I still shouldn't be eating it 
Yeah. Like holding onto that or like soda because I don't do I don't do um, like coffee for caffeine. So it's always like Dr. Yeah. Pepper, but it's also really bad for you. So it's been like working, cutting that out. But you hold yeah. on to those things because it's like, well, I can still do it. It's just not great. Yeah. <laughs> You're kind of trying to hold on as long as you can, but. Yeah. Um, do you uh, do you ever drink, uh, go like to the coffee stands? Um, no, I don't do anything coffee because it's, yeah. it's a natural diuretic. Uh, well there's a um there's a drink called lotus and it's mm. all plant plant-based energy drink which i guess coffee is too but um they have a sugar-free version and um i had i had a um gastric sleeve done last year um uh, because of my being immobile pretty much um and then having a food addiction you know like it really um I just decided that like I don't want to get to a point where I'm so unwell that I have to have people come in and take me to the hospital and it takes you know a couple people to lift me up and get me down the stairs or something and so I decided that not necessarily even strictly for me but I mean yes for me but also for potential caregiving situations in the future just because of my health um that I had that surgery and um I've lost so far I've lost um 105 pounds but that's good thanks but I'm still uh in the same boat kind of where you're at like not for the same reasons obviously but like I can't have carbonation and I can't have I can only eat like a quarter cup uh not a quarter three quarter cup or a cup of food really at a time and sometimes it you know like it's just a matter of like learning that new relationship with food you know which is yep. hard because because food's been your buddy <laughs> been oh yeah I'm a, I'm a big food person too so. <laughs> me too and it's like you know with with drugs and alcohol I mean, addicts of any kind, right? Moderation is not a thing. <laughs> oh, I mean, oh, I know. Yeah. I'm, people I'm, in general. But no, no, because I was, first time I was in the hospital, um, my colitis has gotten so bad and the pain was so bad. They offered me like some other heavy duty painkillers. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Like, I know my personality, I know my lack of self control when it comes to like candy and sugar. Like, no way. Oh yeah, putting on any heavy duty like painkillers or anything like that is a horrible idea. I know. Like, I will enjoy that. No, thank you. I will enjoy that way too much. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's the same with like migraines and stuff. When I go in, not it's not as much anymore because they're more aware of opioid and they're not as likely to give them. But, um like when I go in, I'm just like, this is what works for me. I want Toradol and I want Zofran. Like, that's it. Just, you can shoot it in my hip in 20 minutes and I'll go back to work, you know, like, but if you give me um, Dilaudid or whatever they used to try and give me, I'm down for the weekend and I'm, it's, you know, it's like, no, I, I don't want to, yeah, I know that 
it feels pretty euphoric and yeah yep. that's nope. that's a dangerous path nope. for me <laughs> nope. yeah. especially with somebody that you know like you that has chronic pain like you know you can make feel better that's what we want to do that's that's yeah, our that's, whole thing that's the issue is i feel too good and i'd want it all the time so nope nope i know 100 percent right who i am as a person and that would not be a good combo <laughs> exactly i know i was that's kind of what's been my saving grace i think is knowing that knowing that <laughs> yeah uh, that's yeah but uh it it's um it's an interesting time that we're living in too with with the pandemic because um right when I got sick it was the middle of the pandemic and so it was really difficult because you couldn't have people coming over and um I I used to go to church before the pandemic but I haven't been to church since February of 2020 no yeah February or so of 2020 and um you know I think that now more than ever, a lot of us that are more, not necessarily housebound, but um, really impaired in going out really are feeling a lot of isolation. And um, I think it's so awesome that we have the groups because um, you know, somebody will say something. It's like, Oh, wow. I have that too. And I, you know, uh, I feel like I'm not alone in that. And, you know, it's just like with, oh, sorry, that's my medication alarm. <laughs> uh, it's just like with uh, people that um, are in addiction and going to, you know, meetings, it's something you need to feed your emotional, you know, to know that there's hope and that you're in it together with somebody else and all of that. And I think that that's kind of what the groups do. Well, and that's, I mean, that's part of what I'm trying to do with the podcast. Um, get people to kind of talk about what they're going through, what they've been through, just so people can realize that, you know, you're not the only person that deals with something like this. And it doesn't only apply to people that have your disease or illness. Yeah. Like you can go to other groups and so many people will understand to a degree what you're dealing with because we all deal with a lot of the same stuff. Well, and like you were saying before, like so many of us have so many different illnesses. Like I, I feel like the, the one that um, the chronic illness support, mm. I feel like that's almost a better group than having a specific group um, for the support because like even if I were to have with my rheumatoid arthritis even if I were to go into remission on that I'm still sick I still have a lot of things I'm dealing with you know and and as far as like medications and all that kind of stuff but when you're in the chronic illness one, there's a lot of people in there that have a lot of different issues, you know? Um, and so 
like that I know I can't think of a specific example right now but I know there's a lot of times when I have a question or I am dealing with something that's not necessarily specific to one of my diagnoses um but I find that because there's such a vast network of people in that group that a lot of people can still relate to it even though it doesn't have anything to maybe we don't have um well we wouldn't know if we have illnesses in in common or not you know what i mean yeah like it's i i guess it would be like going to a addiction support group versus one that's specific just for one if you were using more than one substance does that make sense so funny you mentioned addiction support um talking to a lady last night that dealt with addiction but she also said that there's groups that are starting to start up for just chronic illness like 12 step groups just for people with chronic illness as opposed to like alcohols anonymous it's like chronic wow. illness anonymous which i thought was interesting um because i mean it makes you know it makes sense that yeah it does there's all these everyone always subdivides everything it's like there's all these individual categories and individual diseases um especially when you start talking about some of the rare ones you know people start to feel like oh i'm the only one dealing with something like this it's like no you just are dealing with that diagnosis like right. everything you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis millions of people deal with around the country yeah yeah your you know your medications might be a little unique or some of your symptoms might be unique but there's so many things that cross over and so many different levels it's like we're we're part of this giant group not just this small small group like 2015 the CDC said for IBD, which is Crohn's and colitis, because they lump them together, there were about 3 million adults in the U.S. that have it. It's about 1.4% of the population at the time. So 3 million people. Now, the quick Google search, you can find that large health issues in the U.S. affect about 48 or 49% of the U.S., which is a little under 160 million people. Wow. So... If you get every 100% of people that have Crohn's or colitis to come together for something, you only have 3 million people. If you get half of the people that have some sort of major health issue or chronic illness or disability, you have like 80 million people. And we all, well, we all I mean, deal with a lot of the same issues. You're right. That's crazy. And, like, and it comes down to like the way I look at it and the reason I think it's so important to kind of bring everybody together in one big group and then have your subgroups to deal with individual like disease issues is because yeah. at some point the government's going to do something when it comes to healthcare that's going to affect a lot of us, whether it be you know, on the positive side or the negative side. And there's going to be a lot of pushback on one side or the other, you know, for or against whatever the issue is. Yeah. And it might affect a specific group. It might be for like people that have diabetes or colitis or fibromyalgia or people that need the insulin shots or the, you know, yeah. The people that have extreme allergies, the EpiPens, like it, it might affect a small group. But if you can pull everybody together as one chronic living or chronic illness group, everybody that deals with stuff on a regular basis, you have so much more power behind it. To either one 
fight against something that hurts people with chronic illnesses when it comes to legislation or to fight for it. And I think the closest you get to that now is cancer. Yeah. Because cancer is cancer, it's cancer. It doesn't matter where it is in your body, it's cancer. So everybody right. fights together for cancer. I think that's the the biggest group that you can kind of look at now that already does that. Mm-hmm. And it's why cancer has so much support behind it. It's why they get so much research done. Um, and I don't think the government could ever come after cancer. Yeah. Because there's just like, there's just so much support behind it. So if we could get everybody, including cancer patients and people that go through that, because I see that as a major health thing that, you know, yeah, if you long do, term. yeah, long term, it's it's a chronic thing. Yeah, even if you beat it, you know, the chances of it coming back and higher risks. Yeah, um, and the medications you go through. So if we could pull all those people and all the other people that don't deal with cancer but deal with so many other things together, we could, we could start pushing for health changes in the U.S. that would help out a lot of us. That would and, be and push for a better healthcare system. That would be amazing. So, so as much as the small individual groups help, I think there is a big need for you know one larger group for all the people that have chronic illnesses, disabilities, and for everybody that deals with mental health. And yeah, that that 49 percent of Americans that have major health issues, mental health is not included in that. Right. And and even with addiction, like I would say over half that I mean mental health uh, basically the DSM-5 when it came out um, grouped addiction as a brain disorder which it is Um, it but in that same respect most I don't want to say most like a majority of my clients also had um mental illness and and it's kind of a chicken or the egg situation like which can, did yeah. they have yeah which, like which... did they have mental illness and so they were trying they found something that made them feel better and you know that you know they ch- could change how they felt and that led to addiction or did they um, start using and the chemical changes in the brain and and situations that they got into maybe were traumatic and caused some emotional uh, mental health that way it doesn't matter because in order to treat one you have to treat both well, and, and we know how well it, America is dealing with anything that comes to right mental like, disorder I've been, mental health I was issues in the field for over a decade and it was not until just recently um, that mental health was being offered in the same building as addiction well, I think, and- I think, unfortunately, like there's, there's like a scale of how things are taken seriously. Like if you have a physical disability that is visible, people yeah. take you the most serious. Right. If you have a disability that is invisible, like Crohn's, colitis, you know, fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. things like that, that cause pain, you're taken mildly seriously. Then you have mental health. Yeah. And anything that, you know, revolves around mental health, mental disability, mental, you know, conditions, it's taken the least seriously. Yeah. Because not only is it an invisible illness and something that you're dealing with, 
it is something that mental health in general in the United States has taken, you know, like nobody cares. Right. Majority of, you know, people, people don't care about it. It's not prioritized. And they talk about it all the time. You know, they talk about people that commit suicide or soldiers that, you know, PTSD yeah. and they end up committing suicide because they can't deal with what they're going through because they don't have the support system for it. Yeah. Or they talk about mental health when, you know, there's like a school shooting or mass shooting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they want to use, you know, the U.S. and news and I guess social media wants to use it as a reason to justify making changes in like, you know, gun control or medications, but they don't want to address the base issue of like, well, are there any systems set up to help these people? Right. Like the way, the way people are treated that have any sort of mental, you know, mental illness or depression or suicidal thoughts, it's just, it's very poor in the U S which is a problem. And then even below them is people that deal with addiction because of the stigma of choice you know honestly um, I want to say I think addiction I would say is probably taken more seriously than mental health really because you you have the a you know you have the the AA groups you have the you have like the detox centers that you can go to and the retreats that specifically deal with it where you can go and they help you kind of get off of a medication and the addiction centers so I I think addiction is probably taken more seriously in the U.S. than mental health. Hmm. I really do. That's a good point. Yeah. Because there's, there's been centers for it, whether it's drug or alcohol, there's been places you can go. They're ungodly expensive. Like, don't get me wrong. It's, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely limiting who can go and participate in those things. Yeah. But it is still, it's still a thing. They don't, they don't have like mental retreats. Yeah. Those are considered, vac- you know, the closest you get to that's a vacation. And people take vacations yeah. to take a vacation. They don't take it because, you know, they're depressed or things like that. And there's, yeah. There's no place that to, needs yeah. that retreat wouldn't be able to put a vacation together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because like, just the depression. I don't know. I know when I have been depressed, it's, you know, usually financially difficult related. for me to have motivation to do anything you know so um I don't know I guess I was just meaning with addiction that it's so stigmatized because I mean um yeah don't get me wrong it's still like taboo to talk about yeah Um, but I see comfortable with it but I'm not saying that they're treated the best and people that deal with addiction are treated like human beings I just I think no, they definitely I do have a little more support than like the mental health community, unfortunately. And yeah, I think across the board, everybody should be, you know, whether you have a physical disability that you can see or you're dealing with mental health, like you should all have exactly. a proper support system that you need to deal with whatever you're dealing with. Well, I mean, even being a counselor, I go to counseling. Like I, you know, even when I was in counseling, doing counseling, I was you know, because we all have, I don't know, for me, when I have something that's on my mind, or um, that's, you know, especially now with not having a lot of outside um, interaction, like a lot of that stuff can really just swirl around. And I kind of visualize it like a 
a snowball that is coming down a mountain and it's kind of mm -hmm. picking up things as it goes. And that's kind of how my mind works. And if I have somebody that I can talk it out with, a lot of times I can come up with my own solution, but it's a matter of being able to communicate it logically in a way that unthreads that whole snowball. You know, otherwise it just swirls around. You have no idea where to start and how do you make anything better? And like, it's just gets bigger and bigger. But if you can find a place that you can talk about it, whether it's they've shown even writing it down can be therapeutic. Yeah. Like, you know, like write it down or talk out or something. Um, and you're right. I wish that that was available and not as looked at as, well, I don't need counseling. I'm not crazy kind of a thing. I just think it helps so many aspects of our lives. When it's, you know, I, I talk about it all the time and it, mental health doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, talking to a therapist. Like you don't, yeah. if, if that's not where you're at, if that's not what it is, like it's taking time and dedicating time to do things that you can relax and focus on. Right. Self-care. Like when you're dealing with a chronic illness, when you're dealing with a new diagnosis, there's so much going on mm -hmm. that's overwhelming. And you're focused yeah. on all of it. You're constantly thinking about it. It's being able to kind of step back. The problem doesn't go away, but right. you're able to step back, you're able to calm down. You're able to kind of think and focus on specific thing. And for me, it's like, I do a game. I do photography. Mm -hmm. Like I love doing nature photography. Me too. Um, but there's so many options. Like some of the people I've talked to write. Person I talked to mm -hmm. the other day, they knit. People can go on hikes if you know if it's something you're dealing with more mentally and you have the physical yeah. ability to go hiking, go down to the beach. Like there's so many things you can do. Yeah. Working in cars can be relaxing for people if you have a hobby, you know. Yeah. Designing things, painting, drawing. There's so many options and it's finding what works for you. And it's not about doesn't necessarily fix the issue no it's it lets you separate from what's going on mm -hmm. focus on your hobby focus on what you're passionate about get yeah. to kind of a point where you're mentally relaxed and then you can start working on the issues because when you're in more of like a relaxed mental state you can logically start dealing with these issues versus letting that kind of overwhelmed feeling and fear essentially control your thoughts yeah. Then you can kind of attack it like, okay, you know what? I got this big medic, you know, big procedure I got to pay for. Okay. Well, let's maybe not look at the big number. A lot of these numbers might be really big, but maybe I can pay it off over time. Or maybe I can right. look for, you know, assistance programs or if I, right. you know, if I got all these different medications I'm dealing with or the different doctor appointments, it's like, okay, you know, you can kind of take the time to step back and be like, all right, well, this one's for this, this one's for this, and it's needed. As much as it's overwhelming, yeah. you know, you can kind of plan things out. Okay, well, if I got this new doctor, what do I need to bring? What kind of questions do I want to ask? If you're just freaking out about having to go to another doctor, you're not thinking about that. Yeah. So it's taking that time to kind of step back and find something that you can do that you can just focus on 100%. You don't have all these random negative thoughts that are getting fueled by fear and, yeah. you know, that overwhelmed feeling, anxiety. It's, so. it's a form of grounding, you know, just yeah. to kind of ground your brain. And yeah, um, I'm, I'm trying to, 
I'm in a position now where a lot of my old hobbies that I used to do are not coming so easily and that um, like I have half of a novel written but that was before when I before I had um, issues with language recall mm -hmm. and um, you know I love photography but I haven't lugged my camera out since I got sick just because I don't know like I feel I, I don't know if I'm afraid of not being able to like I I my friend encouraged me and and um, we entered a um a fiction writing contest and it was like just a short story and mm -hmm. and it was awesome to be able to do it I didn't place which was fine I my goal was could I do it be happy with what I submitted and do it by the deadline and I did it it was really difficult which I think really kind of made me sad because I love writing and I love reading and I can't really do that right now but I um the other day I had a free um credit for an audiobook and so I've never been one for audiobook because I have ADHD and so if I'm just listening then my brain is like oh we can do all this other stuff and then I'm not actually listening but I was on a uh, in a car and going for a couple hours and I thought well this would be the perfect time to try out and I found that it was something that I actually really enjoyed and my brain was actually listening and I don't know if it's some of the neurological changes or what but um, it's kind of like what you're saying I need to kind of maybe reframe like you know I can't hike out and do the nature photography like I used to do but maybe I can get into macro photography you know that's, that's what I do a lot of oh yeah I do a lot of macro macro I mean I do when I say nature I do a lot of like flowers and stuff yeah so it's well, like you know the, it flavor, flowers in the neighborhood that kind of stuff and it's it's yeah. all macro so it's not like I need to go far usually and yeah thankfully Virginia has a lot like all of our parks in Virginia in, in Virginia Beach in the area that I live in um even the parks that are like in the woods they have a they have restrooms and stuff so yeah I can still kind of get into the woods and even if I'm having a bad day I'm still within a certain vicinity of a of a bathroom so yeah and that's I think that's kind of realizing is that you know maybe it doesn't look exactly like it did before but it doesn't mean I can't still enjoy those things I just have to maybe be open to trying it in a different way yeah so but it I don't know it's hard because I never had time or energy to do any of those things unless I really pushed and so I I have struggled mentally like um I really tried to focus this summer on looking at things a different way like you know um yes I am not able to work right now but I'm able to be home and enjoy this beautiful sunny day I you know this kind of inner this kind of weather I love this but I would have been so tired and busy that I wouldn't have been able to enjoy it. So I'm trying to find silver lining in things that 
um, even though I wouldn't have necessarily chosen the reason why I'm home all day, um, it's given me opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I'd had the choice. I don't know if that makes sense. No, no, that makes sense. Um, and I've I kind of talked about that a little bit with the um, lady I was talking about with addiction. You, know, you got to be grateful for the things that you do have. Um, and you got to look at it in a different perspective and kind of making those decisions of, okay, you know what? I might not be able to do this, but it's important that I focus on this, this, and this. Like I made yeah. a recent career choice to not be a, a diesel mechanic because 20 years of turn and wrench, especially diesel, which is heavy duty. Mm -hmm. I, I don't even want to know what my body would look like at that point. Yeah. As much as I'd love doing it. And as much as I, you know, I love working on cars and love the diesel trade. I don't think my body could do it for 20 years to be able to retire. Like I don't. Yeah. Well, doing something that you love, but having to depend on it for your income, it can really affect the way that you feel about doing that thing too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you worry about, okay, well, especially when it comes to health stuff, like am I going to be able to do this 10 or 15 years down the road? Yeah. So, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of a lot of things to keep in mind. I know it was it was a real like I was making some really good money. Finally, had gotten to a place that you know, um, and just to get cut off because I, you know, like I said, I had lost my career and. Um, I wasn't eligible for unemployment because I couldn't work and I couldn't get the, um, you know, uh, family medical because I worked for a tribe and they don't participate in that, um, which is fine, oh, but okay. it, but it like, I mean, I loved that job and it was like, being able to, even though you are struggling being able to make a difference for somebody else makes it worth it, I feel like. Mm -hmm. And and I'm somebody that gets my sense of worth from my accomplishment, you know? And if I can't do anything, I have to find a new way to, to have worth. I do, you know, it's not like I don't feel like I'm worth anything, but there's a sense of guilt for not being able, you know, my husband's got to do everything. So, and, and I know I had years and years where I was primary and did everything at the, around the house and with the kids and, you know, um, he was working and military and, but now to not be able to do anything, it's really hard to accept that and be okay with that and not I don't know. Well, sometimes, I mean, it's, it's not always about money for, per se. Um, yeah. Which is, which is kind of what I've, you know, really, cause I, I do photography and I mean, I've only been doing it for two years. I didn't take any classes. I kind of just figured it out. Um, and not to like brag, but I'm really good at it. Yeah. I take some really cool photos. And yeah. I could probably, you know, heavily focus on it and make, make a good amount of money on it. 
um, especially in the automotive side, or if I wanted to push into like wedding photography. Um, yeah. And I do a pretty good job at editing them too. You know, I, I take some really cool photos, but it, it's one of those things. It's like, okay, you know, if I do that, it's, it's for me. Yeah. yeah. And you know, like people get cool photos and what they're paying for it. So that's, that's why they get the cool photos. You know, it's not like a charity or anything. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of my, my like thought before the summer is like, I could really push into photography and make money, which would be nice. Pay off some medical debt, pay off some stuff, be a little more financially comfortable or focus on the podcast. Yeah. Which I mean, doesn't make any money currently, which is fine, but it's, <clears throat> I think like want versus need. Yeah. There's this feeling like I need, I need to need to help people that deal with this stuff yeah verse i want to make more money doing photography or i want to do some photography stuff like i can do photography as a hobby on the side whenever i want yeah but there's like a need to be like okay well you know i've dealt with a ton in the past with my colitis i think it's time to help other people that are dealing with that right now yeah so yeah it's those you, you have those moments it's like well what do i want to do you definitely want to feel like you can make a difference if you can. And the way I look at it, and it's, it's my three, three P's, pain puts things into perspective. And that perspective can give you a purpose. Yeah. I don't think, if you look at a lot of people in the world that do things to help other people, I don't think they do that unless they went to the rough part of the life that pushed them to that whether it's, you know, the disease that they're dealing with or some sort of traumatic event that they experienced and that's who they advocate for or push for. But yeah, unfortunately, you know, pain does give us a purpose in the long run once we kind of accept it and understand it. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Like, I feel like if you've gone through something hard, and you've come out the other side and you can use that to help somebody else unless it wasn't for nothing well it's almost your duty yeah that's pretty much why i went into um, addiction counseling just um you know a lot of uh, clients have gone through things that are very relatable and you know being able to help somebody else with kind of what you're doing now, you know, like with the podcast, like being able to use that and advocate or show people that there might be another way or, um, you know, like, here's all of these things that have worked for me. You're welcome to, you know, see if any of that would work for you. Or not like, even that, like, hey, here's how I screwed up. Don't make that mistake. Yeah. Like, don't do not do that. It hurts. Like, yeah, you'll pay for it. And it's not fun. Like, avoid it. I yeah. figured it out. It was a bad idea. Don't do it. Like, <laughs> learn from my screw ups. Oh. Yeah, there's that part of it, too. <laughs> no, no. And I, and I say that because the first time I was in the hospital, like, 17 I wasn't communicating with my doctor correctly about everything that was going on so my colitis got way worse than it should have so it was like a hundred percent my fault well because I was diagnosed with something new I was wasn't communicating correctly wasn't paying attention to things and I let it get worse than it was 
which I mean, you know, it's 17. Can't say I'm well, you know, 17 year olds are the best at communicating, but it's but it's part of a grieving process, you know, like we that's that's the thing is we grieve because what we had dreamed and hoped for our future are now gone. And now yeah. we need to make new dreams and hopes. It's like well, you know part of the goal with just, that is like, it would be uh, one thing if you just it it seems like most people it's progressive you know like mm -hmm. whether it's the same disease or whatever and so it's not just leaving that but you just get to a point of acceptance and then you another thing comes along and knocks you on your butt and you're like ah you know how much more i i used to uh i used to talk a lot in metaphors and and because i'm very visual and so my kind of idea of that is like you know i'm i wasn't healthy so i wasn't in the land of the living and i wasn't truly disabled because i was still able to work and do all of that stuff so i was like on the sandbar in between you know mm -hmm. um so i wasn't in the land of the living and i wasn't in the river of disability and so but every new thing that comes along, it, it erodes a little bit more of my bank. And, and, you know, I like, I deal with it and I put it aside and I move on and try to work, you know, ex be accepting or whatever. But then another thing comes along and pretty soon it knocks you into the river and now I have no choice, you know? And oh, yeah. so now it, it's like, the unknown because it you know it'd be one thing if I just knew okay I just need to work on getting better and even if it meant being where I'm at now but you know not getting better or whatever but not getting worse you know but that's the thing is we never know what tomorrow holds and it, I think it's that fear of like we've already experienced a lot of loss and and whether it's you know opportunities missed or or whatever it is but we just keep we know that it's going to keep coming mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep nope and you can finally get to the point where you're you know like for example i get to the point where my colitis was doing good then I got hit with a bunch of medical debt. It's like, can I, can I get a break? Like I just, yeah. like the colitis just stopped bothering me. Why do I have to pay a bunch of money now? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, no, it's, it's a, it's a constant thing. Um, and I think part of the hope, at least the, the way that I dealt with something is to find people that can get exposed to the podcast early enough before they get in that kind of snowball of bad and yeah. keep letting it get worse because it's one of those things there was like a six-month period where um i was newly diagnosed i was still getting used to everything but i was on steroids and stuff that were kind of working yeah and that six-month period was not great but not horrible and it wasn't like snowballing downwards 
towards the end of it, it started to get bad. And that's, you know, that led towards the hospital. But there was that point where it's like, I would have loved a bunch of resources and would have been open to it before I got yeah. to that point where I'm just like, oh my, you know, I'm in, it was in such a bad place where it's like, I don't want to listen to anybody. So I, I think there's times. Done? Yep. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Maybe. Hello. Are you there? Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Back? Okay. <laughs> um, what I was saying, I think there's there's definitely times where people that are going through things maybe not diagnosed or newly diagnosed that still have a buffer before it can get bad. Yeah. I think the first, you know, I think year like one through three was the worst, but that first year was kind of just like, okay, where am I at? Like still kind of grasping everything. Yeah. Um or for people that are, you know, people that struggle for years to get diagnosed with something, getting yeah. them kind of looped into stuff and like, hey, even if it's not dealing with stuff, we do talk a lot about like second opinions on certain podcasts or, you know, talking to other doctors, asking the right questions. Or if you feel like you need to have a test done, telling your doctor that's what they're going to do, regardless right. if they want to do it or not. Like, I'm paying How for it. You're going to do this. Exactly. How do I don't care. Yeah, like I don't care if it costs me five hundred dollars. I'm convinced this is what I need, and pushing it because I've had a couple of people that I talked to that didn't get diagnosed for a couple of years because they suggested it. Their doctor's like, "Oh no, there's no way it could be that," and they were exactly. running out of things to do. And well, why don't we try this? Oh no, you don't need to do that. It's not that. Go to a completely different doctor. They do the test, and it's like, yeah, no, that's what it was. That's kind of how my RA was diagnosed because I was going to a rheumatologist for about two and a half years. And um, in looking back over my medical records, he said that he did a specific blood test, which was not in any of the labs. And so when people look back at that test, if, you know, he's saying that they did it and it was negative, mm -hmm. well, it, he didn't do it. And so I finally went to another uh, he basically told me, look, you have fibromyalgia. You need to go home. You need to accept your pain and just realize that it's going to get worse. It's never, you're never going to get better. And there's nothing really anybody can do and was pretty much his words. I mean, something like that, it falls under malpractice. <laughs> that a hundred percent falls under malpractice because telling you that you, you know, you did a test and it came back negative, didn't even do the test. That's malpractice. That's a hundred percent malpractice. Ugh. Like and that's, that's inappropriate. I mean, yeah. That's, yeah. So, I went, so, I went so there's to too much new, of that. Yes. And people don't know to, to say anything. I went to a new rheumatologist and the first visit, she just looked at my joints and she's like, I can guarantee you have either psoriatic arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. First visit. Yeah. And I'd been seeing mm -hmm. this guy for two and a half years. Yep. So I went, she did the test that he said he did, but didn't. And it was like anything over 20 was positive. And mine was like 119. Yep. So, you know, and my, my inflammation levels are always off the charts and you know but because he was 
just arrogant and didn't want to be wrong about anything that yeah and it was awful and that's i mean that's part of what the podcast is for i mean don't get me wrong like 17 year old me podcast probably wouldn't have helped at least when i you know when i started to go really downhill but yeah. afterwards or before i think it would have definitely helped with a lot of things i think I could have set up extra safeguards that would prevent like, medical costs or kind of prepped me for possibilities down the road. Like, I think that's, that's the big thing to sharing the experiences. Like, you know, I don't, I don't do it to scare people of what they could be dealing with. It's like, Hey, this is the reality for you. Now you have this disease. This might be something you need to deal with. Here's right. the best way, you know, here's some of the best ways to avoid getting to this point. Right. That's what it really is. Like it's going to be expensive. There's going to be a lot of pain involved. But if we can reduce the amount of pain you have to deal with, and if we can set up things so you don't have to pay out of pocket for more than you should have to pay for, like that makes a massive difference. Massive right. difference. And that those two simple things, you know, reducing pain and helping <laughs> cut cut expenses or getting diagnosed properly can help so much on the mental side when it comes to depression and suicide. Right. Like, so it's, it's simple thing. Like it's, I'm not telling you to ask your doctor about a specific medication necessarily or right. do this or do that. But Hey, you know, if you feel like your doctor's not doing things right, go get a second opinion. It's okay right. to get a second opinion. Like you're not cheating on your doctor. You're paying for a professional. Go get a second opinion. Exactly. That or second opinion could get you diagnosed a year earlier. And with some people, if it's a cancer, if you're getting diagnosed a year earlier, that could be the difference between living and dying. Exactly. And, and how to word it. Like, you know, like most of us that have something that's taken a long time to diagnose we already know what we have usually when we get there um, or at least along the lines of because it's taken so long and because we've done a lot of our own due diligence um, I and I find that the groups really help to narrow down things too mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a uh shoot i lost track of what i was gonna say i mean using oh, your resources to, as a reference like you know there's been a lot of times when i'll know what i think it is and instead of going you can't go in and say well i think it's this because i saw this on the internet because they won't take you seriously but if you go in and you kind of have to stroke their ego you know like a lot of them are I don't know, maybe narcissistic because they think that no. they're going to be able to fix people. But... One thing we were talking about too on a podcast um, in the past, like if you think it's something, start listing off all the symptoms that literally point to that. Right. And, and, well, and really read down it and be like, okay, yep, nope, maybe I do have, I have a mild, you know, I'm, it's not bad, but I feel this or, or, hey, well, yeah, no, I've definitely run into that or. Yeah. And you have to, it's, so dumb like, because you have to do you have to it reverse engineer that, it that's the dumbest yes. part you don't you have to do it in a way that brings their attention to it that you're not damaging their ego you know or well, I that, mean, unless you're in a big enough area where you just have a bunch of doctors you can go through and just find the right doctor one lady yeah. that i talked to she actually interviews doctors before she even makes appointments really mm -hmm. 
she said she won't go to a new doctor unless they're, she's able to ask both the office people and, and talk to the doctor briefly. That's just, pretty there's amazing. No, there's no, she said, I don't waste my time going to a doctor and paying them just for them to not do anything. That's pretty genius. I was like, damn. I mean, you know, I can't say I've had to do that because my gastroenterologist is pretty good and having any issues with them. Yeah. Um, and for the most part, if I say, hey, I want to run this test, he'll run the test. Like he doesn't argue with anything, but he is younger. Yeah. He's definitely a younger doctor. He's not. I've had issues with some older doctors because they're so set in their ways and they've been doing the same things, you know, for 30 years the same way. So yeah. something new comes out, they don't want to try it. Right. So. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I mean, it's really scary too, because like if you end up in the hospital, you want to know that the people there know how to take care of you for your issue. Mm -hmm. But when I go in, I have to bring in paperwork that explains what myasthenia gravis is. Like, like a lot of times they'll put on an O2 sensor which first of all, I have Raynaud's, which means I have really bad circulation. And a lot of times it doesn't read on my fingers. You have to put it on my ear. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but they'll check my O2 if I'm having um, uh, exacerbation, like I'm short of breath and stuff through the O2 sensor. But it's not a matter of being able to process the oxygen that's in there. It's a matter of weakness in the diaphragm I can't breathe yeah. so if my oxygen level is low it's already late they you know and it's really difficult to be able to tell them that without them getting mad about it or not believing you and so I have to bring in paperwork from it's uh it's a rare form of muscular dystrophy and so I um I I have a first responders paperwork that I bring with me and then there's like medications that are absolute no-no like um can't take this can't take that yeah yeah or if I like if I'm in a car wreck and they have to do emergency surgery I can't have the paralytic in the anesthesia so they would have to know that like you know so it's like stuff that is really scary but the chances of it happening are pretty low. I don't know. But, you know, I just want to be able to, if I can't breathe, I can't talk. And if I can't talk, I want to be able to go into the hospital and know that I'm going to be saved, not made worse or, you know, because I'm not able to advocate for myself. So having to bring this paperwork with me is really frightening because they don't know enough about what I've had to explain to a paramedic in the back of an ambulance, what MG was, you know, I mean, there's so many different illnesses and I get that not everybody's going to know about everyone, but it's when you're like, can't breathe and you, uh, it's just really scary. You know, you want to be able to trust your doctor. You want to be able to, you want to be able to trust that they know what to do to keep you safe because you're not in a position to advocate for yourself at that time. Yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a it's a mess. That's why we talk about it. And it's a matter of just getting more people to talk about it and getting more people to uh, listen to it. Learning curve that is never ending. Some yeah. doctors that are great and on the ball and they know exactly what they need to do. And then there's other ones that you know, oh, you're fine. Well, I'm not fine because I can't breathe, but well, your oxygen's fine, so you should go home. Well, no, because I could die, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. So, yep. So something like this, I think, is really powerful because it would, you know, like I didn't know that there were first responder pages that I could print out and bring with me, you know, or like um, I didn't like um, I recently was diagnosed with basilar migraine, which is like I thought I was having a stroke and it ended up being a migraine with brainstem aura. And that's a new thing for me. And so it was really frightening. But if I were to ever have that happen out in public, I can lose consciousness and all of that kind of stuff. So it really didn't um, occur to me until recently that I should have a medical <laughs> bracelet. Like that should be pretty standard that you would think that, but it's one of those things that oh, well, now I need this bracelet to tell everybody. I, it's like accepting in your brain that you're in this phase of life where this is what you need. You know what I mean? Because we have, I, I think we, a lot of us suffer from the imposter syndrome where it's like, oh, I'm not as bad as other people, so I'm okay, you know? Um, that I'm not really as bad. I'm, I'm not really as bad as I think I am because of whatever, you know, I'm feeling good today. So that means I'm really not as disabled as I thought, or I think we have a hard time accepting that. Yeah, no, I can, I can understand that. It's definitely, definitely plays a role. There's just so many things that we have to take into account. It's a lot. Yeah well well i appreciate you coming on and sharing yeah thanks for having me thank you guys for stopping by and listening to the podcast i appreciate everyone make sure you guys stop and check out chroniclivinginfo got a new website up and running that's going to be the main area to find all the social media content as well as accounts so make sure you guys stop by if anyone's looking to share their story, volunteer, either time or experience. There's also going to be some links on there of how you guys can get involved. As always, I appreciate you guys and I'll see you in the next one.